everybody. Welcome to episode number one of the Sam Levitt Baseball Podcast. Hope you're having a great month of November as we approach Thanksgiving. Thank you for clicking the link or pressing play or however you might have stumbled upon this. Doing a podcast and I guess specifically something focused on baseball is something that I've thought about for the last couple of years during each baseball offseason, but never have really sat down and done it. And that changed a couple of weeks ago, so here I am. Now another guy with a podcast, and I hope it's something uh, that you'll listen to and enjoy. If you have no idea who I am, I'm the play-by-play voice for the 2019 Texas League champion Amarillo Sod Poodles, the AA affiliate of the San Diego Padres. We had a tremendous season in Amarillo, Texas, first year of the team, uh, one of the best experiences of my life, and I know there are a lot of Sod Poodle fans and maybe even Padres minor league fans that might turn this on and listen every week and um I can't wait for 2020. It should be a a lot of fun coming up this season, and I can't wait for it to get here. I'll be honest, it's sort of a blank canvas right now for what I want to do every week with this podcast and accomplish every week with this podcast, but I do know that one of my main goals is to simply have interesting conversations with people in baseball. So that might be broadcasters like we have today and Mike Farron from MLB Network Radio or other media personalities or players, former players, coaches, people doing interesting things in our game. I don't know that I necessarily want to really get into the news and notes of the day just because I think there are so many different outlets you can go to for that. But hopefully I can provide an interesting conversation with people in and around baseball that you'll want to listen to every week. Certainly, if there's somebody that you want to hear from or somebody that you follow on social media who you think would be a very interesting guest, let me know. You can always tweet at me at Sammy Lev, S-A-M-M-Y-L-E-V. Instagram, same thing, Sammy Lev. You can hit me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page. Or you can email me, Samuel J. Levitt at gmail.com. And let me know uh, who you might want to hear from and who you think would make an interesting guest and an interesting conversation. Like I said, it's a blank canvas right now, so I'm I'm down for pretty much anything uh, if it'll be interesting and, and a good person to talk to. So let's get right into our first ever guest. It is Mike Farron, who hosts Power Alley on MLB Network Radio on Sirius XM. You can listen to Power Alley from 10 to 1 Eastern Time every weekday. Mike also does pre- and post-game on radio for the Arizona Diamondbacks. He does a great job at a lot of different areas. And the thing that I really like about Mike and his show is they do a great job covering so many different things around baseball. They cover what's going on day by day during the season, during the offseason. But one thing that SiriusXM, MLB Network Radio, and his show, they really do well is they cover some of the bigger, more macro issues about the game and things that I think we should care about. We get into a little bit of everything from his career, his beginnings, covering the game, what he does every day, to some of the issues that people have talked about for the last couple of years, from umpiring uh, to interest in the game and, and really everything in between. So I encourage you to listen all the way through. We start with his career and then transition into some of those other topics. A really good conversation. And without further ado, here is Mike Ferris.
Mike, thanks for doing this. You know, first I wanted to start with you. You know, when you look at your resume, you really grinded your way to the show you do on MLB Network Radio now. And it's funny because I always say, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but kind of realistically too, that what broadcasters do to get to certain levels or to work in the major leagues, it's really not all that different from what players do. Like, obviously, one is hitting home runs and hitting 95-mile-an-hour fastballs, and the other is just talking. But it's that same kind of grind, for, for a lot of people, that same kind of grind energy it takes, focus it takes, dedication it takes. So how would you kind of sum up your your career from all the way back when you were at WGN working in the minors and now to what you're doing on on really some of the biggest of levels? Yeah, I mean I think I mean I think there's a lot of analogs, but you're right between that in that that you know you do have to kind of grind it out and obviously I mean you, you hit on a couple of spots that weren't necessarily as grindy. I mean I started in Dubuque, Iowa and worked in LaPorte, Indiana for a while. But I, I mean, I think the other thing is that, you know, that there is no one set way to go about getting jobs, you know, either at, if you're hosting a talk show or being a play-by-play guy. I mean, I think from a play-by-play standpoint and from, from my job with the Diamondbacks, I think I have a pretty non-traditional path. I really didn't have that many games of minor league experience that I did. I mean, most of it was from doing stuff for Sirius and and really coming from more of a radio station background as opposed to, you know, spending eight, 10 years in the minor leagues and, and you know, grinding through bus rides and all that stuff. I didn't really have that experience. Um, I guess I had it more in the, the small market radio side. But I mean, I think that those, those jobs are also super important, whether it's, you know, minor league baseball or, or small market radio or whatever. I mean, if, especially if you're in, you know, the entertainment industry, because I, it allows you to have the opportunity to make mistakes. And I think that that's a really important part of, of growing. I mean, we, we hear it a lot from, from general managers and player development directors. I'm sure you, you've gone through that a lot, right? Where it's like, well, you know, we want to give them the chance to fail, right? <laughs> Before they get to the big leagues. And that's how you learn. And so I think that that's kind of a universal thing is that you know, finding jobs, especially as you're getting started, that give you the freedom to be able to make mistakes, I think are really important because you're, you're not – one, it's going to help you get better. And two, the, the – the, I don't want to say pressure, but the, the, it's a little bit different the higher you go up the rung in that the types of mistakes that you can make that are tolerated are a little bit different than the ones that might be tolerated if you're you know, starting off in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Yeah, it's funny because sometimes people ask me, like, do you ever mess up on air? And I say, I mess up every day. I'm on like four hours a day. Like, I mess up literally every inning, you know, whatever it might be. Do you have one, like, really good story about, I guess, a a fail or a mess up you had, like, throughout the course of your whole career? I don't know that I have one that's really great. I mean, I've I've had – I've been the guy that's dropped the F-bomb, um – when he wasn't expecting it, but that was on satellite radio. So I was really fortunate. That was when I was old enough to, to have known better. Um, I guess, so this is my favorite one. So when I worked in Dubuque, Iowa, um, 
I, uh, I worked for what was a, a like really a mon pa radio station. Paul Hemmer was the guy that owned the radio station. Paul had been the morning guy at what was then WDBQ for like 40 years at that point. And he ended up, they approved a new stick. This was in like the mid nineties in Dubuque and he bought it and started his own station. So it was literally Paul did mornings. He was the general manager. His wife, Jan did the traffic and billing, not like on air traffic reports, but like, you know, commercial traffic scheduling that there's son steve was the program director and i was yeah i joined them about a year and a half or almost two years in and one day i did the overnights and i i was filling in on the evening request show and this is back when i was you know 20 years old so um you know we all make poor decisions when we're 20 right so i was in the middle of of playing uh, a long record you know it's it, it was a classic rock station so every once in a while you could pull out a 13 minute frampton tune and so i threw one out to go out, outside and have a cigarette and i locked myself out of the radio station and so i had to call paul and jan um at and, and paul you know did the morning show and so he was up at like 5 a.m so this is like 9 30 10 o'clock at night or he was on the air at five so he had to be up at like three so this is like 10 o'clock at night and i had to call over to their house and be like hey um um can you can you guys let me in i locked myself out i locked the keys inside and jan had to drive over let me back in this is before i had a cell phone so i'd had to walk across the street to like the gas station, get change for a dollar, put it in the coin and I had to go and get that. And fortunately we were automated a little bit. So commercial breaks had been running and songs had been playing, but yeah, that's probably my favorite screw up that I had at a young age. I don't think you could get away with working at a major market. That's funny. That's a, that's a great story. Um, you know, you mentioned it places like Dubuque, LaPorte, Indiana, and I would imagine, you know, getting the show and, and becoming a part of Sirius and MLB Network Radio obviously was a really big break for you. So walk me through how that went down, like how that advancement in your career happened. Well, I'd been working at WGN for a number of years as a producer and reporter. And um, when Andy Mazur left to take the Padres job, they had an opening for Cubs pre and post there. And I was the internal candidate, I guess, and or one of the internal candidates and was really hopeful of getting it. Um, I thought that'd be a great next step forward for me in my career. And um, I didn't get it. Um, and it was you know, heartbreaking at that time. I mean, that was the city I'd grown up in. I know you you spend your winters in Chicago. You know how special a place it can be. WGN was a place that I'd always wanted to work. I thought this was going to be, you know, the place that I, the only place I worked for the rest of my career. And so, like, I had to start to re uh, rethink what I was going to do next. And that June, I just was looking for jobs on the internet and found that there was an opening at Sirius XM and what was then XM radio. And I sent off a, an uh, application basically and sent off a tape to Chuck Dickman, who was then the program director on the MLB channel. They were looking for somebody to do updates and to host a pregame show on their play-by-play channels um, that would be pre-recorded and daily. They hadn't done anything like that before. And I got real fortunate in that the general manager at WGN also knew Chuck. And while they passed me over for the job, he was kind enough to say good things about me to Chuck. And and all of a sudden, I was um, you know, going through the process of interviewing. And by the time I got to the uh, end of June, I was offered a job. And, and you know, right after the All-Star break in 2000, 2007, I, I started it. And it was it, it, it in what I thought was going to be just a, you know, you, you, when you're young, you think everything is a traumatic experience, even when I, I think it was 30 at the time. And, and even then I thought it was. Um, but what ended up 
coming out of that was the best career decision that I could have made and the most fortunate. And you know, from this, you know, like generally it's about contacts in the industry. So I consider myself extremely fortunate that I actually got a job by applying on the internet. That doesn't happen all that often in radio. Um, but to be able to get that, um, you know, get that opportunity was really pretty huge for me. And, and, you know, I've been at involved with Sirius ever since. And the footnote to the story is I was really disappointed that they didn't hire me. They absolutely got the, the hire right. Cause the guy they hired is Corey Provis, mm. who's the voice of the Minnesota twins and a tremendous guy on top of being a great broadcaster. So like they, they, you know, like you look back on it now and you're like, gosh, I wish I could have been me, but also they hired the right guy. Yeah, when you're young, everything feels like a traumatic experience. I'm with you. It's it's funny because I, I have a lot of, I guess, you know, people out of school or, or that are in college or, or just graduating who will contact me and I'll talk to them about getting into the minor leagues. And one thing I keep on saying is don't take everything personally and nothing is the end of the world. Like when we're talking about these really – you know, low level, really low paying minor league baseball jobs, especially when you're first starting, like it's, it's going to be fine. Like you'll get another or you'll figure it out. And there's no blueprint to how to go about life. And especially in this business, go about it. But I think um, with that too, yeah. you know, like, I, I think there are a couple of other things that are, that are important in that as well. In that like, you may have, like, we all try and script out what we expect for our life and it's not going to go that way. I mean, and this is regardless of industry, right? We all try and figure out, you know, we, we try and script out what it is that we want to do over the course of our lives. And I'm going to be here at this age and here at this age and here at this age. And that doesn't, that doesn't really happen that way. It's good to set goals and to have goals, but it it's not good to, to keep them too combined. You want to have an outline, but you don't want to have to bullet point every single step on the outline. And I think that's important. And I think the other one is that, that like when you are in a job, no matter if you think it's a stepping stone or not, you have to be fully committed to that job because that's how you really improve. And you'll find that once you kind of tune out all the other stuff and be like, man, I'm not worried about the next step. I need to worry about locking in on this. That next step is going to come a lot faster. During the baseball season, I mean, obviously you're really busy between the show on MLB Network Radio in the morning and then doing the Diamondbacks in the evening. So how do you keep up with everything? Because I'll tell you, one of the hardest things that I find working in the minors is keeping up, and this is a little bit different, but keeping up with what's going on in the big leagues because I've got my own league to worry about and my own system to worry about. So how do you, in another sense, kind of do it all, keep an eye on the Diamondbacks very specifically? And also, I mean, I find it really hard to keep up with all 30 teams. And when you get a call about, you know, the Orioles or whatever it might be, or a team that's not doing so hot, like how, how you navigate all that. Well, I mean, a lot of it is preparation, right? So it's how much time are you willing to commit to prep. And I think my path to preparation is probably a little bit unusual now at this point. I mean, I, I feel like I never stop prepping. I'm the guy that's on Twitter all the time. I mean, my wife absolutely hates my phone because I'm either texting someone or I'm reading a story or I'm checking Twitter. And she's like, what could you possibly be doing? We're sitting at, at the table. Like we don't have kids, but she treats me like I'm a child <laughs> and it's deserved um, because I'm constantly on my screen. Right. So so I think that's part of it is that you just need to be willing to look for as much information as possible. 
And I do think that, you know, I was fortunate in that before I transitioned into this job with the Diamondbacks, I worked at Sirius for almost a decade. And the only sport I covered was baseball. You know, I haven't done I've, I've done some you know high school play by play outside of that for other sports. But I'm not a football announcer. I'm not a basketball announcer. I don't host talk shows about general sports. I focus on one sport. So all of my job prep is focused on that. And what happens with, you know, one team affects all 30 to some degree. So I think that that's basically, you know, how it works is that, you know, I just spend a lot of time preparing, paying attention, learning what's going on, trying to make sure that I have as much information as possible, trying to be as prepared as you possibly can, and then being willing to admit when you just don't know, because there are going to be things, there are things that I certainly miss now that I wouldn't have five years ago when I was doing just one job, but you have to be comfortable with the fact that you're not going to know everything and hope that your credibility on the stuff that you do know carries enough that you, you've got enough favor with people when you say, I don't know the answer to that, or I might be wrong or be willing to admit that you're wrong, uh, that you can go back and fix it. Yeah. When you go back and think about when you were working at WGN and covering the Cubs and the White Sox, you know, 15, 20 years ago, to what it's like now to cover the game. How has it changed with the way the game's changed? Um, I mean, in covering it, I, that's a good question. Um, I think, like, from a from a comfort standpoint, maybe it's because I'm I'm older, but I I think it's just because of the the way players have evolved. I think it's easier to cover players now. I mean, I think that there's less of an edge to guys in the clubhouse. They're not quite as intimidating. They're a little bit easier to talk to, have real conversations with than they were for me 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I I don't know, it might be because I'm in my 40s now that that's the reason why. But I also think that, that part of it is just that there's been a little bit of a change in this generation of player or the last generation of player from the previous one that's made it a little bit easier in that regard. So I'd say that that's one thing that's changed. And then, you know, I think the other thing is the terminology. And I think it's really important to to be on top of what it is that teams are using to evaluate players, because that's really what statistics are. Um, you know, they're, 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 it's information to help inform you on who the players are and why they're important. And, you know, I think John Shabby does a great job with that. And I, I really, you know, I agree with Boog. You know, when if if uh, if 30 front offices suddenly tell me tomorrow that RBI is the best way to evaluate hitters, I have to start paying more attention to RBI because you need to be the conduit to your listeners for what's happening in the game. And so I think, you know, the statistical revolution has been really important in that regard in, you know, helping to learn what's important, how to communicate complicated ideas simply to your audience and, you know, how to use that to help you know, create comparisons. And, and I do think that to some degree that and the Internet and the amount of work that's on the Internet has probably made the job easier. I mean, I can't imagine hosting a national show on baseball you know, before the internet, you know, or in the early days of the internet, because just the idea of not having that information at your fingertips would be very, very difficult to try and prepare for and to have enough information to be able to do a credible show. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the terminology and the analytics, because I think in 2019, I mean, it's like every day there's you know, I feel like that is such a big part of what's going on right now, and especially in the last five, ten years. And like for me, you know, I've been around coaches and players, like all different kinds of coaches and players who seem to look at this all very differently. And like people in 
front offices and in player development who are on the younger side, who it is how they got into the game through analytics and through, you know, more of a math background or whatever it might be. And, and obviously, you know, older coaches, older players, whatever it might be, who are who come from a more traditional background, some of which may be really open to it and some of which might not be so open to it. So I guess at the end of the 2019 season, how would you sum up where we are as a game with all this different stuff when it comes to analytics and people accepting it and teams accepting it within their organizations? Well, I mean, I think every team has it and and uses information. I mean, it's, you know, I think, I think what's like the biggest trends that have happened are less about, you know, the numbers that we've seen that have become more prevalent or more, you know, established since the, the advent of Moneyball and more into how, we're using the information on a micro scale uh, when it comes to, um, you know, making pitch to pitch decisions. I mean, I think that that's where, where it's changed. And I think that's when the terminology you, you have to use, you know, something that that's general because I think those, those older coaches that maybe aren't as versed in the numbers, um, would still be able to tell you about an advanced scouting report and, you know, your, your younger video coordinator who's in charge of uh, creating an advanced plan might be able to give you better data points or, or, or technical jargon to be able to, to evaluate, you know, how you want to attack a hitter, but it's basically the same thing. I mean, they're, they're advanced scouting reports. So I think that, and I think, you know, the technology that we're starting to see with high speed cameras and uh, portable tracking uh, for pitches and for hitters and um, you know, uh, swing mechanic or, or, or swing, you know, things like the blast motion, which, uh, you know, evaluate the path of a swing or, or the speed of the hands in it. I think all of those things are important to have an understanding of. But the thing is, is that like, just like with anything else, the information is only as good as how you present it to your audience. You know, in the case of a front office, that that information is your audience is um, your coaches or your players in a lot of respects, right? Um, the In the case of a broadcaster, your audience are people who are listening to a game. So how do you simplify those things? How do you, what do you take out of it to make it so that it's universal or as universal as possible in its appeal? Like uh, the, the example I like to use is, you know, if I tell you that a guy has a four ERA, um, but that his FIP, his fielding independent pitching number is closer to three, like if you're advanced in in metrics, you're going to understand that number. If you're not, you're you're not going to get it. But if I tell you that a guy has a four ERA, but he's actually probably been a bit unlucky because he has a high ground ball rate and he actually misses a ton of bats and doesn't walk guys, I've just told you what's important in fielding independent pitching, and and not use that number to tell you that this guy's four ERA probably isn't a good indicator of who he is as a pitcher. And I think there's a lot of different ways that you can use that. You know, you can say a guy, hey, this guy's hitting 230, but he's getting a little unlucky. You know, he hits the ball really hard. You know, he has one of the highest hard hit percentages in baseball. I think that's important to be able to to give context to be being like, okay, I know it doesn't look good for this guy right now, but he's a much more dangerous hitter because when he hits it, he hits it hard. He just doesn't have enough, uh, you know, 
information for us to see it even out. And I think that those are things that you're t- just a- examples of ways that you can take the information to communicate it in a simpler manner. Right. I'm with you. You know, and, and I've had people ask me with broadcasts, like why, I mean, personally for me, I don't necessarily talk about a ton of different analytics type stuff uh, when it comes to minor league broadcasts. Number one, because the same information isn't always publicly available. And like some of the stuff you find online, sometimes you have to take with a grain of salt and you don't know what's, you know, an exact science or what's not and what's being based on the, the hit charts that somebody's, you know, inserting at the game. Uh, so I, I try to stray away from it. But part of that too, like what you were saying is people have to understand it, you know, and, and I guess that's something you have to think about with your show too when you talk about this stuff is like people have to know what you're talking about. Um, you know, and maybe there's a, a segment of, of Twitter or a segment of, of baseball fans that do, but I feel like a lot of it isn't universally understood yet or universally known yet. Yeah, well, I think, it's, I think it's getting better. I mean, I think, it, yeah. you know, listen, like wins above replacement, like war is fairly ubiquitous at this point. I mean, it's been around yeah. for nearly 20 years. So, you know, I don't think I need to go into explaining what all the components of war are every time I do it, you know, like I'll use, and, and listen, in a talk show, you have a little bit more freedom because you're not beholden to the pitch to pitch. Right. So, you know, I, I, we use a lot of plus stats, so we'll use either weighted runs created plus or OPS plus, cause he does a good job of comparing guys to league average, you know, and it's really quick to be able to explain that. I think it's, it's things that if you're using things, you just need to explain what they are, but you need to get good at explaining them succinctly. That's right. the key because the more you drone on about something, the less chance people are going to have to understand it. You've just got to give them a lot of the, the bare bones information that they need to understand what you're talking about very, very quickly. And, with radio, you have to do it very quickly because the, the odds are overwhelming that someone is listening to you pretty passively. You know, they're they're not going to pay attention to every word. So you want to make sure that you give them, you know, when you give them a nugget that it sticks with them and you, you mention why it's important. And so I think that that's I think those are important factors in that. But, you know, that said, like even in the minor leagues, like. You know, minor league evaluation is a little bit different than major league evaluation in that, you know, some of those same components like strikeout rate, hard hit rate, those are things that are important in the minor leagues. Mm. You can get a lot of that from fan graphs. And if you explain that, it probably has a little bit more weight to it or just saying, you know, this guy hits the ball really hard or he's hit a ton of ground balls this year, despite the fact that he's hitting 360 probably means he's not, you know, like that, that kind of 360 hitter. He's taking advantage of the fact that the sun is baked on the infield, in the Texas league. Well, one thing I really like about your show is that you guys tackle, I think really well, a lot of the more macro issues and, and topics about the game. And I think, Sirius and, and MLB Network Radio, you guys do this really, really well. And some of, I think, the bigger, more long-term, more macro things going on. So, you know, umpiring, uh, probably one of, I don't know if you would agree, one of the bigger stories from the postseason, just when you look on social media and Twitter and the way people kind of break things down and criticize it in strike zones, Are you a proponent of an automatic strike zone one day or no? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think I I think if the technology is to the point that it's that it's, uh, you know, consistent, I think that I would be. I mean, I think 
Um, you know, all you do is hear from hitters and pitchers that they want the strike zone to be consistent. And so, you know, if it's going to be the same every day, I think that there's, you know, there's, if you've got the technology to do it, you should be able to do it. I mean, I think it's going to take some adjustments when it comes to probably the top and the bottom of the strike zone. Um, but that's also, while, while people may be aghast at that, that's something that's happened throughout the course of baseball history. I mean, we've always adjusted the, the strike zone north, and especially at the top. At the bottom, it's only ever adjusted once, and that's to the current setting right now when it was moved to the hollow of the knees, I think, in like 1996. So, um, so like, you know, making those adjustments, I think, would help that. And I think that there are probably going to be some unintended consequences from it. And I think the, the key is figuring out does having that consistent strike zone outweigh the unintended consequences. Like what happens with a major league hitter if he knows his strike zone is exactly the same? You know, after 250 plate appearances, you would think that he's got a pretty good idea of what's a ball and what's a strike. So what's that going to do to the way the game is played, I think, is a fair question to ask. And I think it's something that you you, you know, want to keep an eye on and get a better understanding of. And I think that's one of the reasons why testing it in the minor leagues makes a lot of sense. So um, I do think that that's something that you know could come along. And I think that the technology is getting closer and closer. I don't think it's going to happen in, in uh, 2020 at the major league level. But I do think that they're going to start implementing it in some of the, the affiliated minor leagues. I want you to tell me if I'm crazy or not for thinking while, you know, an automatic strike zone and the technology would be good for consistency. I think there's no doubt about that. Like, personally, Mike, I don't want it. Like, I like the human element of, and I know that's a really kind of old school thing to say, but I like the human element of the strike zone and umpiring and feel like you know, the arguments and kind of the almost like the controversy that comes from some of it is an entertaining part of the game. Am I crazy for thinking that? Because sometimes I think I am, but uh, I kind of like the human element of it. And I, and I think there are there is a segment of people that feel that way. No, I, I agree that there are. I mean, I think. I think there are, but to me, the human element is the players. I don't go to see the umpires. The human element to me is the players. Um, You know, I do think that we have lost some of that, the, the energy that comes with managerial ejections on arguing bang, bang plays at the bases. You know, I think with balls and strikes, I mean, it's, you know, the first mention you make of it, you're supposed to be ejected anyway. So, I mean, I don't think we really see all that many. I mean, you, you get a couple of really good rhubarbs over the course of a year um, when there's mistakes and there's still judgment calls that umpires make that can be, you know, that could be argued and that managers could do more to argue. But I think, I think part of the lack of arguments that we see in baseball anymore, even though ejections are still relatively stable, I think, um, I think the, those lack of entertaining ejections probably have as much to do with, with, um, amphetamines not being part of a big league clubhouse as they do with the, the changes in technology for umpires. It kind of in the same breath. I mean, like one thing that concerns me, I guess, and, and I've tweeted about it before, and I think you and I have even gone back and forth on Twitter a little bit about this, you know, is is baseball's attractiveness to younger fans? Like for me, being in college, being in my 20s now, one thing that really concerns me is I feel like a lot of my friends are not that into baseball or don't follow it super closely or don't know the stars. Is, is that something that concerns you? Um, with people in their twenties, I don't know if that's that, that does, because I do think that there is this kind of trend back to baseball when you get, 
um, a little bit more detached from your college years. I mean, I think part of the, the issue with baseball in college is that like cut, cutting out two and a half to three hours of your time to watch baseball every night doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, you know, like the, the, there's better things to do. <laughs> and right. I think, you know, you're only overlapping with, you know, a small portion of the season too. So um, I don't know that, that I necessarily look at that. I mean, I think, I think to me, the more interesting trend is how young people consume baseball, which is significantly different than, um, the way I did, you know, I watched my, my six-year-old nephew who's baseball obsessed. He went to his first game this year, his first major league game. And since then he's been just like obsessed with baseball. And so what he does is he takes his dad's MLB TV subscription. And when he wakes up in the morning on a weekend, he goes through and he starts watching like the top 10 highlights of teams and he starts watching his favorite players. And I think that what we're seeing, at least in some of the studies, is that the shift in the Generation Z has been towards player driven fandom versus team driven fandom, which kind of jives with the way uh, European soccer is, to my understanding. I'm not an expert on the Premier League or anything like that, so um, you'll have to take what I say with a grain of salt, but that's my understanding of of what has happened for a long time in Europe, and I think that that's what you're starting to see with baseball. I mean, the, there is a lot of content, and it's really portable. And I think that's one of the big advantages the MLB at bat app has had. And that's one of the advantages to baseball. That was always one of the advantages for, for, you know, radio stations and television stations to carry it as it gives you programming basically every day for six months. So I think that there is that opportunity to continue to get into the hands of younger viewers I th- and, and listeners. I think it's just that it's beginning to evolve in the manner in which it's consumed. Um, and just from some of the studies about youth participation in baseball and the study that NYU did last year in terms of looking at Generation Z and its popularity with baseball and the way that it's bouncing back in a different way uh, than it was for Generation X or for millennials, I do think that there are some things to be encouraged about as it continues to trend going forward. Not to mention, you have this, the you know, one of the reasons why I think a generation or close to a generation of kids walked away from baseball is scandal. Um, John Dowd is in the news for for having been President Trump's personal attorney, but once upon a time, he was the guy that investigated Pete Rose's connection to gambling. And I was doing an interview with him a number of years ago, and he made a really great point about why his kids weren't baseball fans. And his kids were like 12 when Pete Rose was banned. And so they were like right in that sweet spot from Rose into the steroid era. And he said, kids don't want to be associated with scandal. And it just resonated with me on like, damn, you're right. And I think that the scandal part of it faces the NFL far more, especially with the concussion issue, than it is with baseball. Baseball has minor scandals right now. Well, maybe the sign-stealing one isn't a minor scandal, but it, whether it has that or it has um, the baseball or some of the issues that surround it, and certainly there's some things that need to be cleaned up, but there is a pretty all-encompassing health crisis that surrounds football that I think is going to affect it with younger generations because they're growing up in that era where it's like, man, if, does this make sense to follow it if everybody's angry about this sport or angry at this sport or they're doing bad things to people? And that, I think, is part of what 
it has the potential for baseball to make a bounce back is to to kind of fill the void to some degree in the same way that football filled the void for baseball fans who who were walking away following the strike and the steroid era and the Rose scandal and everything that happened in the late 80s and into the mid mid to late 90s. Another macro, I guess, theme or issue, um, the reporting a few weeks ago about the minor league restructuring. And and the reason I wanted to ask you is because you view it from a stance of covering major league baseball. I obviously I'm in a lot of circles where, you know, I'm really involved in the minors and people who work in the minors. And I think for a lot of people who are around minor league baseball, like I am, you know, our first reaction, and I think it's natural is, you know, when I see a headline that says 40, two minor league teams could be eliminated. You know, my first reaction is, you know, there's people who work there and those are broadcasting jobs. And what happens to independent baseball, which is a, a place where I work for three years. You know, I don't really know what to make of this yet. I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on what the reporting has been about it? Well, I mean, I, I think, I think, you know, some of this is born of facilities. And I think that that's the, the, at least what Major League Baseball has said publicly, I do think that some of it is born of streamlining the process too for Major League Baseball and uh, or for for Major League Baseball teams in you know the way that they they treat prospects and the fact that they have far better facilities at their disposal in their complex leagues to be able to house and and have lower level players perform. So the the biggest impact is going to be felt. You know, if the if and when these changes come, and I expect that they will, will be felt at the rookie league levels, like um, some of the spots in the New York Penn League and the, the Appalachian League, the Pioneer League. I think that those would be the bulk of it. Um, the I think the most the most significant impact I think is for fans that are otherwise underserviced by baseball. So one of the things that baseball has done a really poor job of. As, as great as the technology is that there is with MLB at bat is that they have not resolved the issue of blackouts. So there are places in like, say, Iowa, where unless you have a cable subscription, you're blocked out from like you're blacked out from seeing seven major league teams. And some of these spots that are are underserved in especially in in, um, you know, Appalachia might be blocked out from say like the Braves, the the Orioles, the the Reds, the Nationals, you know, a bunch of different teams that they otherwise would be able to see and so they could get their baseball fix. And so I I don't like the idea of if your best bet to see baseball or to see especially to see live baseball if you're, you know, living in Johnson City, Tennessee or near Johnson City, Tennessee is to see the team there. Um I don't like that part of it but i think the rest of it is is more about you know creating a better environment for the players to come up through through um to have to try and maximize their success and and make the big leagues and i don't know if that's the right way to go about it but i think that that's where it's born of and i do think it has a chance because you mentioned indie ball i think in a the in a lot of these spots, I think there is the chance for independent ball to return, especially if the facilities are decent and there is, you know, somewhat of a fan base. I'm not, I don't know if, 
having a major league affiliate is really that big a draw if what you want to do is go and see baseball. And I think that having independent leagues potentially gives a chance for more players to be free agents to get a chance to, you know, sign in the indie, you know, the indie leagues way better than I do. It's not an easy place to play or to work necessarily, but that might give them a, you know, better opportunity to be seen as well and for the players to move out of it. So, you're right in that a lot of this is born born out of you know the focusing on the player parent club discussion and it ignores the cities that have these teams it ignores the employees of these teams it, it ignores the owners of these teams and those are people that are going to be affected by it and i'd love to see a solution that allows all of these things to happen i don't know if that's possible or not but I do think that you are going to see some fairly significant changes in the way that the minor leagues are structured come the end, potentially the end of the 2020 season. The last offseason, the biggest theme, and maybe you'll disagree, but the, I, you know, definitely one of the biggest themes was players not signing until very late in the offseason into spring training. What, what would be your one thing to look for, your one theme that you think – this offseason in baseball will be the most prevalent? It's a good question. I don't know that I can tell you a theme that I think is going to be the most prevalent. I am hopeful that the winter follows a more normal path than the previous really three have. Some of that's born of the fact that we're getting to the end of the collective bargaining agreement and it tends to be in those final two years we've seen teams spend more. The other is that we have several teams that are at the precipice of coming out of rebuilds or have just come out of them, whose front offices are are under more pressure to win now, which means that they have to add talent. Um, so that's kind of what I'm focused on right now is trying to see whether or not that plays out. Um, you know, I think there's a number of organizations that find themselves, you know, whether it's the Padres or the Angels or the White Sox or the Phillies who, you know, who, their, their front office's tails are on the line going into this year because they need to start delivering on the promise of their rebuild. And to do that, they're going to have to improve their major league rosters, which means spending money or making trades, and that makes for a more active winter. So I think that that's something that I am really focused on this winter is to see whether or not that impacts it along with the spot in the collective bargaining agreement. Um, the fact that there are you know more teams that seem to be involved in free agency to this year Um that that's all going to work together. I don't know that it's going to. It may just be a slow trickle through the winter again, um, and the, the Players Association and Major League Baseball will continue to be at each other's throats about uh, about what's happening to free agency and player contracts. I think that's entirely possible as well. Um, but I, my hope is that we return, if not entirely to normal, at least to some level of it this winter, based on the needs of teams to win, because at some point, you know, as much as owners are making away from, you know, being tied to winning and losing, the name of the game is still to win. And you have highly competitive people that are involved in this. And at some point, with few exceptions, you've got to start cashing it in on the one loss line as opposed to just taking money in for the organization. And I think that that's, I think we've reached that point. My hope is that we've reached a boiling point with that and the teams start to, to maneuver in a more aggressive fashion. Yeah. I guess just one more thing off that. Does that, 
you know, because the, the, the model of what the Astros did, you know, and, and this has been a theme around, around the big leagues, is these teams, you know, and, and you heard agents and, and people saying it last winter, you know, these teams essentially knowing going into an offseason and going into a season that they're essentially trying to be non-competitive. Does that, do you believe in that? Does that bother you? Or, or how do you think that affects the game and, and fans? Well, yeah, I think it depends on the situation. What the Orioles are going through right now doesn't really bother me because they tried to win in 2018 and it was it just went spectacularly wrong. And I think teams that have tried and failed like them or Detroit, you know, those teams need to have the opportunity to be able to rebuild their organization. I think that's a traditional manner. That's something we've seen throughout baseball. My issue is more with the teams that are stuck in the middle that can't seem to make the maneuver that gets them over the top, tearing all the way down to the studs, and then trying to take several years to build back up. That bothers me. And that, I think, is anti-competition. The other stuff is, like, you know, listen, when the Astros when the Astros tank or hit rock bottom, I should say, you know, Jeff Luno took over a team that already had a hundred loss season. Five years prior or six years prior, they had failed to sign any draft pick from the, through the first like four rounds. Like they they were barren. They had been trying to run that middle ground for a long time, and they just ran out of gas at it. Right, like they had a couple of eighty six win teams, and they were kind of competitive, kind of competitive. They tried to go back at it, and it just cratered on them. And so I think that's a I think those are things that you are somewhat unavoidable. You have you've been trying to win, you keep trying to push the cart forward and you absolutely have to take that step back cuz there's no other choice. I think teams need to be able to have the flexibility to to do that, to try and build their organization uh back up. But they the, what they shouldn't do is be that team that's in the middle and just all of a sudden decide we're going to tear it down. You know, we're not going anywhere. Let's trade our good players and let's spend four or five years wandering through the desert to try and get back to it. Because I think there are enough teams now that have tried to go that route, that there were so many doing it at the same time that you've lost any benefit to it. There were too many copycats of the Astros and Cubs model. Then I think it's made it tougher for those teams to recover. And and I just and I think it's anti-competition. I mean, I just think it's like if you've got a decent enough team, you should be trying to add to it with an effort to win and making shrewd moves to try and, and make your team better than to try and take it all the way to the bottom and try and stockpile players that may or may not ever make it. Big thanks to Mike Farron for joining me. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike underscore Farron, F-E-R-R-I-N. Again, he does a really good job on MLB Network Radio on SiriusXM. If you do not subscribe to SiriusXM or you have SiriusXM and you don't listen to MLB Network Radio and Mike's show Power Alley from 10 to 1 Eastern every weekday, I really encourage you to do so. They do a great job. And again, a big thanks to Mike for coming on. That'll do it for Episode 1 of the Sam Levitt Baseball Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Peace. 